This is Wrestling Nostalgia with Dave Dynasty. Greetings wrestling fans and welcome to Wrestling Nostalgia. I am your host Dave Dynasty. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We have a good one here today. Uh, we have uh, joining us in an interview today, uh, Todd Gordon, the founder of ECW. He now has a book out called Todd is God, the authorized story of how I created extreme championship wrestling. Uh, that was written by Todd and Sean Oliver. Uh, we'll talk about that book uh, at the end of the episode. I'm going to give my review of the book, what I think of the book. It was a great read. A spoiler there. Uh, before we get to that, let's talk about a few other things. I spoke of it last episode, but I am officially have appeared on Nate Maxson's We Can't Wrestle podcast. We have uh, Me and Nate have gone back and forth. Uh, he, him wanting to have me on. It's been a while. But on his 200th episode, it is out there and available now on all podcast platforms. Uh, there's two halves of it. There, the first half is the one I appear on. Uh, not only me, but Bob Smith, uh, former uh, editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, former wrestling writer, is on there. So it's hey, you got two two great interviews. Hopefully, mine's a great interview uh, on that half of the 200th episode. And coming up on August 12th, I will be attending uh, the Mid Atlantic Territory Wrestling's Battle for the Belt Show in Nashville, North Carolina. Um, just there as a fan, I'm trying to get out and watch a little more independent wrestling in my area and uh, see some of the shows and everything else. So if you're in the area and going to be there, uh, say hi to me. I will be there. Now let's get on to some news and stuff that I'd like to talk about. Uh, first of all, we have the announcement that the Iron Claw, which is the biopic on the Von Erich family, will be released on December 22nd. Uh, they released a picture of the, the Von Erichs. It's okay. I don't know. It's it's a little peculiar to me. It, it does look like a picture kind of of the time period, but uh, they're, I don't know. They're kind of indistinguishable. It's, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I'll, I'm, I'm going to hold reservation until I see the movie, but uh, I'm not the, uh, the, the premiere little teaser pick didn't knock my socks off exactly. So hopefully the, the movie will, will be well. Uh, we got some important dates coming up, at least important to me uh, that I'd like to talk about briefly. Uh, between this, what the release of this episode and the release of the next episode, uh, on August fourth, nineteen seventy nine, Bruiser Brody, uh, or AKA King Kong Brody, defeated Dick the Bruiser in Indianapolis for the WWA title. Everybody knows uh, that I am a WWA fan. Uh, the Battle of the Bruisers was a big deal in Indianapolis. Uh, you know, like I said, Brody went by King Kong. Uh, I, you know, and, and then and then beat Bruiser in this for the title. Bruiser later regained it, and won the Bruiser name back. Uh, but on August fourth, nineteen seventy nine, is when Brody defeated Bruiser. Uh, on August 5th, that is, that's my birthday, but it's also the birthday of Stan Lane, one half of the fabulous ones in the Midnight Express, uh, my favorite tag team of all time. Uh, August 6th is the birthday of gorgeous, or uh, handsome, excuse me, handsome Jimmy Valiant. I don't know why I say gorgeous. Handsome Jimmy Valiant. Uh, so happy birthday, Boogie Woogie Man. And August 14th would have been the birthday of Bobby Eaton, uh, half of the Midnight Express, as we spoke earlier, uh, one of the, one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. Uh a personal anniversary that's kind of coming up on August 6, 2004 was the first show that I ever personally promoted. It was for uh, my, uh, my promotion Midwest regional wrestling that I ran at that time period. It was in Greenwood, Indiana. It was a bot show at a JD by rider. How about that? Right out of the gates with a bot show, huh? I don't know if that's something or not, but uh, it was outside. It was all right. You know, we had a few people there, not nothing great, but uh, it was, it was fun. It was nervous. It was exciting, but it was wild. To, to dabble into that promoting side of things. Uh, I had some great guys that you know, worked for me on that show. And, and like I said, it, it's good memories. But that was August 6, 2004. So, uh, you know, an anniversary of that. They're 19 years. So, uh, hard to believe next year will be the 20-year anniversary of my first show promoted. Pretty wild, huh? Uh, 
but uh, let's talk about the latest episode of Dark Side of the Ring, which featured Bam Bam Bigelow. Uh, I thought this was a really great episode. I thought the the people they had in it talking, his family, uh, Taz, and so on, Diamond Dallas Page, all did a great job. Uh, I think uh, you know Bigelow is a star, but he's I, I think he's a little forgotten, right? A little unheralded now, and and uh, how talented he was, and some of the stuff he did in his initial WWE run, his second WWE run. Uh, some of his stints in WCW, and of course the stuff he did in ECW. Uh, but you know, Bam Bam was uh, was a great, great talent who uh, you know obviously the, you know had some demons that that got the best of him. But uh, the story was great, and it was great hearing from his family, uh, seeing some of the pictures and clips of him. Uh, you know, Dark Side of the Ring. I, I enjoyed the series. Some of the episodes this season have been kind of hit or miss for me, but I think the Bam Bam one was re- it was really good. I really enjoyed it, and I, I highly recommend everybody. Uh, go out and give that a watch. Uh, like I said, we have I have an interview coming up with Todd Gordon, the founder of ECW. Uh, ECW ECW is very important to me, right? Um, I know I typically lean towards some of the old school style and whatever else, and that's that's why I lean. But man, ECW, I'm, I'm a huge ECW fan, and uh, I remember you know whatever it was, probably 95, 96, somewhere in that time period. Uh, I finding it you know late night on on a station. Uh, on the old, you know, the satellite dish, because we were picking up, you know, feeds from the East Coast and all over the place on this thing. And, uh, and, and discovering ECW and just thinking, what is this? And it, it, it just seems so, so gritty, so, so hip. So, you know, and I, I mean, at this time, you know, I'm, you know, I'm whatever, I'm 20 years old, uh, 21 years old at that time. And it's, it's really, it's really hitting me, right? It's, it's really, uh, really, really impacted me. I always, always felt like I have kind of a, a little bit of an older soul than what I truly am, but it's still, was uh, it just it felt so fresh, right? I was I was so disenchanted with professional wrestling and what was on TV and the the cartoony nature of the, the it was just too much, right? It was too much, and this was of a guy who was a child of the '80s, right? But it was it got to the point where just it was just too much, uh, and uh, ECW was a breath of fresh air, right? And in, and like me and Todd talk about it in the interview, you know, ECW a lot of people always think about the violence and the the blood and the gore, but there was so much more to it, so much more. To it, uh, in the styles that they presented, and the characters they presented, the promos, uh, the, the you know the image, whatever. Uh, there's there's a lot more to it than just that hardcore stuff that people have have pigeonholed it as. Um, and I, you know, I, I I so I followed ECW closely. Right, was was like I said, a, a avid fan. But living in the Midwest, I didn't get a lot of opportunity to see them. I did see the show in whatever it was 2001 uh, in Indianapolis, the infamous show where uh, Taz, who was under contract to WWF at the time. Uh, defeated Mike Awesome, who was contracted to WCW for the ECW title. That was a pretty wild experience seeing that show, uh, but I was there at that, and that was that was a lot of fun. Uh, so, uh, like I said, ECW, I'm, I'm a fan of ECW. It was you know important in my in my fandom as a wrestling fan at that time. Uh, was always a fan of it from when I first discovered it. Like I said, you know, cruising through the channel on the satellite late at night. So, uh, so with that in mind, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, I'll talk about uh, talk to the founder of ECW himself, Mr. Todd Gordon. So stick around. If you like horror movies, be sure to check out Dave Dynasty and Ike Isaacs on the Listen to Their Screams Horror podcast. It is available on all podcast platforms and on social media at Listen to Screams. That is Listen the number two in Screams. All right, we're back here on Wrestling Nostalgia, and I am now joined by Todd Gordon, the founder of ECW, 
who now has available the book Todd is God, the authorized story of how I created Extreme Championship Wrestling. It's available at all major book retailers. Todd, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself, Dave? I'm doing good, doing good. I'm glad to be on here talking to you. Uh, I very much enjoyed your book, and um, I highly advise everybody go out and get a copy uh, and read it. So, I'm, But I'm excited to talk to you and, and hear some more stories. You're one of the first people, I think, to get a copy of the book. I remember you posted that. You got a copy like weeks before anybody else did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I, I have. I have contacts with a, uh, a lot of the publishers and do a lot of book reviews and things. And uh, they, they often, they know, they know I have a wrestling podcast. So when they have a new wrestling print, they, they just send them to me. So yeah, That's I, great. Yep. Yeah. Um. So what? Why did you feel this was, was now was the ti- right time to write the book? You know, what's nothing about the right time. I just never had any desire or plan to ever write a book. And Sean, uh, my co-author, he from KCAB Commentaries, you know, he just hounded me day in and day out for like literally two full years. I, uh, you know, was just hanging out on the phone. I'd be telling him a story or another story. And he'd be screaming and laughing. He goes, Todd, we've got to put this in the book. I said, no, I'm not doing a book. We went back and forth, back and forth. Finally, you all but wore me down. <laughs> and also, there were things that I thought really needed to be cleared up and rectified uh, as I'm getting older now. Some, you know, parts of my legacy were really not accurate, the way I, should, the way I can put it. Yeah. I wanted to make sure they were put out there accurately so people would actually know what really happened. Because it's such an important part of a lot of people's lives. Yeah, definitely, definitely is. And like, I mean, like you said, because throughout time, uh, typically those who quote-unquote win write the history. And that's certainly kind of what's happened with ECW now that, you know, now that the WWE owns it and Paul Heyman works for them, uh, you know, they, they kind of get to write the history and, and that's what's accepted a lot of times. So, you know, Paul's often, or I guess always now, marketed as, as the force behind ECW. Uh, so, I mean, were you kind of, even prior to wanting to write the book, did you, did you worry about kind of being forgotten over time and, and your impact on ECW? I mean, you were the guy that, that founded it. You created that style. You hired Paul, you worked with Paul, and yet, you know, he's the one that's always talked about as being, you know, Mr. ECW. It's true that eventually, it's, you know, you can paint a picture any way you want, and eventually you start painting it as Paul Heyman's ECW. So, well, that's interesting. I mean, I was running that thing for a couple of years before Paul even got hired. So that's interesting. And I just figured, you know what, let it be, let it be. But I kept getting seeing all these DVDs coming out, books coming out, the rise and fall of ECW, the history of extreme championship wrestling, the unauthorized story. Why were they all the unauthorized story? Because no one ever interviewed me once for one of those projects. How can yeah. you talk about the rise and fall of a company when the guy who built it and started it didn't even talk to or interviewed? Either was Joey Styles, either was uh, Shane Douglas. We weren't a WWE employee. We we're going to be part of it, and that's why it was called the unauthorized story. So I said, you know what? Maybe it's time to write the authorized story. You know what really actually did happen since I was there watching it all happen day by day. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Yeah, like I said, everybody, everybody talks about Paul Heyman, and and I'm not, I'm not undermining Paul, his creativity, and, and what he does, but you know, Paul was in that position because of you, and and you yes. founded the company. You you hired Paul Heyman to be the booker. You. You know, you did all this, and all this is in the book, right? You explain all this and how it happened. All it, yes. Yeah, and uh, and and it's you know it's great. Like you said, you know, talking with Sh- with Sean, it's it's literally just like sitting down and listening to you tell stories. Sean did a great job of conveying it over into a book. It feels just very conversational. I like that in a book. You know, where it doesn't it doesn't read like you know an educational text. It, it feels like a conversation with Todd Gordon. That's really what it was. I mean, we did the Zoom for like you know two, three, four hours in the shot. 
maybe three, four times a week over eight months. I mean, there was so much material we kind of cut out of the book just to get it down to a readable size. And I would just tell stories and say, tell me about some road stories or you and Sandman or whatever the case may be. And I'd go into one of my Sandman stories and he'd be rolling on the floor. And the more stories I would get, he just built them all up. His job, which is no easy task, believe me, was trying to figure out the chronological order all these things happen in and put them all in the right order and line them all up successfully in, in succession. And he really did do a masterful job of that, i got to be honest with you. Yeah. So really, when it sounds like me talking to you, the reader, I'm really talking to Sean, the reader. I mean, it's yeah. the same basic idea. He just had to put it all in the right form for me. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, he did a, he did a great job. And and you talked about, you know, telling your, you know, this obviously you telling your story. And you talked about how for years you just, ah, let it go. It doesn't matter. Whatever. But and that's that seems kind of the opposite of pro wrestling typically, right? Pro wrestling, it's all about the grudges and the heat, right? And people are quick to do a shoot interview and, and try to bury someone else just to make a few bucks. You, you haven't been like that, right? I mean, you've had all the opportunity over all these years that you, you could have told these stories. You could have got this out there in a million ways. Do you, do you kind of feel, why, why is your approach different? Is it maybe your business background and, and, and some of the connections you've had over the years and, and the, the deals you've made that, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, seems to be completely 180 of most wrestlers well this is also the sound thing, like 180 of most wrestlers also i think it was a lack of ego in that regard i mean it wasn't that important to me for all those years you know i was out of the business now so did I, is it that important to me to have that legacy continue i'm not sure then all of a sudden as i said i started getting older and approaching 70 i thought you know it would be nice what happened was though when i saw paul's dvd come out yeah uh you know paul Heyman, i don't know what it's called uh, he even asked me to be on it. I, we went went down to the uh, arena and um, gave him some interviews also for that. And I'm watching it when it came out a few weeks later, and I'm like, wait, what? He was still going along with the, like this work that we had perpetrated 30, 27 years ago. And he had worked the boys in the locker room. And I realized that he never smartened them up. After all those years, he'd never smartened them up. I mean, my friends, you know, the Sabus, the Fonzies, the Sandmans, they all knew the deal. So there's no reason to smarten them up. But I just assumed he had smartened up all the guys from New York. You know, the Dreamer, Bubba, Taz, and whoever was up there. And he uh, never did. And I thought, that's pretty messed up. I guess he was afraid of tarnishing his legacy as his, his star was growing and growing and growing. But if I'd have known that years ago, 10 years ago, maybe I'd have written the book then. I don't know. Uh, but that's was part of the impetus to go ahead and write it and tell the people what really happened. But that's not the only part of the book. Obviously, it's a focal point because right. people didn't know that no one knew the story, so it's something brand new that people were hearing. Like, imagine that Paul lied. But it was the undermining of the company. It was the the, you know, the backstabbing, and there was a lot of going on there, and all that spelled out in the book. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you know, like I say, like you said, our ECW is such an important part of so many people's lives. I mean, not only the wrestlers. Not only you, not only Paul, not I mean, just us, even us as fans that watched it, right? And it was it was just perfect for the time. It just it it fit everything. And it 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 whether people acknowledge it or not, I mean ECW changed the course of wrestling. And it was emulated by, you know, WWE, WCW. I mean, you know, this little this little East Coast promotion totally changed the, the approach of wrestling. And uh, so what what was involved with you and Paul, you know, kind of being open to these new trends, these pop culture references and and you know, wrestling is notoriously kind of stuck in the past and, and, and unwilling to change. And you guys were very kind of very hip and, and even ahead of the curve. What I mean, what caused that? Well, for one thing, we really didn't have a lot of people looking down our you know, 
down our hole, so to speak, to see what we're doing there. We're really kind of going underneath the uh, radar, using the kind of music we use without any permission to use it. Uh, but and the music, by the way, Paul picked all the music. You know, I was still like, you know, classic rock 70s guy, and he, <laughs> he was always ahead of the curve. So he brought up the grunge music and got the public enemy going with their music. And each person's song, you know, was, was more hip than the one before. And I love the music when I heard it. But he was the one who was turning me on to it all the time. I mean, don't misunderstand. He's a genius. I mean, the guy's a straight-out, stone-cold genius. The thoughts he comes up with, the the uh, the angles. Uh, when we would sit together at night and just come up with an angle for you know, whoever it may be, and we start expanding on it and expanding on it, I mean, he, his brain was all over the place. But unfortunately, you have to have a, you know, be a person and a human being to go along with that. You can't just be a machine. Yeah. Uh, Ke- Kevin Sullivan used to always say, he needs to be locked up like a crazy professor in a room by himself. So he doesn't ever <laughs> talk to anybody. I just let him go to work and come up with you know, angles and stories and things like that. Uh, but I would say that um, in terms of the audience, I'm saying to you, the audience was as much a part of the show as we were. Right. I mean, you could, if you could take out the salmon, you're still the audience. You know, if you take out the audience, you still, it's a, a symbiotic relationship, I would say. Yeah. Where we really felt like the audience is part of the show. From the very beginning, when they start bringing their own weapons to the show, nobody had ever done that before. So we were already involving them, integrating them into our into our being. Uh, the fact that the wrestlers would fight all over the arena, front to back, so there was never a you know bad seat, and no fans ever touched them. No one ever bothered them. They moved out of the way. They were respectful. They got it. It was a smart, hip audience. So you know. It's harder to trick them, harder to work them. But when you do, it's a, you know, and you come up with some great angle, like the Sandman blinding angle, whatever it may be. You know, the, the audience appreciates it all that much more. They're like, oh, I can't believe they got me. How did I get, you know, and that was, and that's kind of a really cool back and forth thing. The chance, my God. First of all, Todd is God, name of the book. Yep. Where did that yep. come from? Came from the people in the arena screaming it or, you know, chanting it when I would come out, announcing whatever's going to happen next kind of thing. Uh, each guy who came out from Shaw, uh, the Shah, you know, the shit, Shah, shit. I mean, it was always each person. The guy who mopped up, they they had mop boy chant for, and he worked for the building. I mean, but the fans were really. It was like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. They knew their spot. And they hit it every time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it is. That's why I said ECW. I mean, and now I mean, a lot of those things are just commonplace, right? They're just that's just part of wrestling now. And uh, yeah, ECW was the one. Like I said, they they, they impacted. The direction and style of, of pro wrestling, you know, so much. You talked about the brawls, and, and a lot of times when people think of ECW, that, that's all they think about, right? They just think about the brawls and the violence and the blood. But there really was a lot more to ECW, and, a, and really a lot of balance of styles. I mean, you had some, I mean, some great actual technical wrestlers and, and workers, and, and and you introduced or helped introduce a lot of uh, lucha guys into the U.S. and stuff. I mean, did you guys purposely set out to have this balance? I mean, did you feel that there had to be something to offset some of the violence every now and then, and, and, and everything on your shows, or you know how, to, or did were you just booking the best talent you could find, and that's how it worked out? Well, you're, first of all, you're 100 percent correct, but it's really a misconception to say that we were like this all violent promotion. Did we have right. super violence? Wasn't being seen like barbed wires and Singapore canes and things that became staples after you know we're we're gone. Yes, but that was never like, hey, how are you going to outdo that in the next match? No, it was like, no, what else we got? Because we had comedy. Public Enemy was comedy. The BWO was comedy. Uh, we had, you said, Matt Wrestling, Guerrero, Malenko, uh, Ray Mysterio Jr. I mean, there were some great 
technical wrestlers on those shows. There were some funny moments in those shows, and there was violence on those shows. And the women. I mean, we had a little bit of everything. That was the whole idea. It was something that I liked as a fan, because I was a fan just like everybody else was just watching the show. I, mean, I went from being a fan to actually having a company by sheer luck and lightning in a bottle caught on and got to a national you know, level. But that was never the intention at the beginning. I just wanted to do shows that I wanted to see. I hated what I was watching on TV. It was all cartoons. WWE actually had a cartoon in the morning on Saturdays. So, yeah. you know, that first main event when I had uh, uh, Abdul the Butcher, Terry Funk, uh, Stan the Man, Larry Hansen, and um, uh, Kevin Sullivan. I mean, that, those four guys out there, that was something I wanted to see. Yeah. As a fan, I wanted to see it. If I wanted to see it, I knew the people who came to my shows wanted to see it too. So I just tried to put on shows that I found good. You know, and I hated being, as a fan, being ripped off. And I hated being you know, worked. I hated uh, the bait and switch of the, we're going to unmask somebody at the end of this match. And then they pull the mask off. There's another mask on underneath. Made me nuts. I hated that as, as growing up, even as an adult. Uh, Someone's going to get stripped at the end of the, you know, stripper back. And they never did. Someone would come out, throw a coat on them, whatever it may be. The losing tag team will never tag again. Well, guess what? When we did that, Ian and Rod, the tag team over 12 years at the time, mm-hmm. never tagged again. We honored our stipulations because we didn't insult the fans' intelligence. We treated the fans like they were as smart as we were. And I think that really was the key to the success of everything. Yeah, I agree. I definitely do. And then, I mean, ECW, you, you mentioned a lot of guys there. In that statement, ECW, a lot of people refer to them as, you know, the quote-unquote island of misfit toys, right? Where a lot of guys who couldn't couldn't break through somewhere else or, or didn't maybe have that, you know, they didn't have that WWE look or whatever it might be, uh, became, you know, stars for you guys. And you guys obviously couldn't financially compete with the WWE and WCW. So how important was it you find these these overlooked wrestlers, come up with compelling gimmicks, and, and you know, to keep your product fresh and, and rolling? Well, that was the whole key because sooner or later we knew, I, mean, I knew that, the big boys were going to come and knock, and, and these guys were making like $500 a shot. We're soon to be making two dollars and $300,000 a year working for Vince or Turner. So, you know, you always had a shelf life for the most part with a lot of them. You knew some of them you were going to lose, and you just hoped that wasn't going to be the case. Uh, but, you know, of course, the guys always saw the greener pastures. But locker room-wise, I remember Hawk coming in and saying, this locker room is literally the locker room of misfits. I said, yeah, <laughs> it seems, seems that way. And they, but they don't love that. They relish that role, and they love the fact that they were the little engines that could. All these misfits all of a sudden banded together, being one giant misfit, and trying to take all the establishment of WCW and the WWE. And that was their mindset. It was like, you know, let's go, to, let's go to the next level. Let's do it together. Yeah, and, and you, you spend a chapter, and you talk about y- your posse. Right, and you talk about those that were closest to you, and and the one name uh, that obviously is is kind of one of your best friends is is the Sandman, and uh, I always I've always felt if there's just if there's one wrestler who's kind of the face of ECW or the poster of ECW, it's the Sandman. He encompasses everything about you guys, right? Your spirit and everything. What what do you think? What made him work so well for ECW and its crowd? I mean, there was that that entrance and everything. It's just, these are just iconic things. What what was it about Sandman? That that clicks so well. I do think his entrance is possibly next with the, along with the Undertaker, one of the two best entrances in the history of professional wrestling. I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal hearing that whole building sing along. I guess we, one day, you know, I could just see his whole gimmick with a surfer, the bodysuit, the 
surfboard. It was flat. It was a WWF kind of character. And that's what we had. Our guys were all hard hitting, you know, you know, rock and roll, just knock it out of the park and party our asses off all night long. That was our, our guys. And Sandman was like that, but he was playing a character. And that never works. Not in Philadelphia, certainly. So once he decided, like, to ditch the surfboard, as you say, we sat down and talked to three of them. And then I went back and I said to Paul, listen, I got a great idea. Let's send this guy out to the ring, drinking beer and smoking cigarettes, like the guy at the end of the bar, looking for a barroom fight, which is basically who Sandman was at the time. Well, sure enough, Paul fought me on it for me. And then we agreed to do it. Sandman went to the ring. He got over like a rover. Oh, my God. People could not believe they're seeing a guy drinking beer and smoking in the ring. So it's a, it's a natural, it made him stand out so differently than everybody else. That he's automatically getting over. And then Paul, with his brilliance, next started the following week on TV, he did something that had never been done before. Every match, every promo that Sandman did was in black and white. The rest of the show was color. But the Sandman part was always black and white. Again, it made him stand out. Like, what is this now? Why is this guy in black and white? And he would take his drag on that cigarette and blow out the smoke. You know, in the black and white, it just looks so amazing as an effect on the, uh, you know, on TV. Many years later, the NWO tried that. And they came yeah. out and were doing the black and white. But up to that point, Paul was the first one to do that there. And uh, it really helped also get him over. And having a woman as a manager didn't hurt either. Yeah. But he was he was out. But he didn't mind. He go out there. He knocked the hell out of anybody. And welcomed it back. You know, he, he wasn't putting his hands up, which he should have been, for all those chair shots back then. It's hurting him today, even unfortunately. But yeah, he uh, he was a, he's a barroom brawler, and he was a real person. There was no bullshit with Sammy. I mean, but anything he said, he, he was on his mind. He uttered out of his mouth. Like he could keep his mouth shut sometimes <laughs> for the for better or worse, but at least he knew he was shooting. He was always being honest. And I respected that because I've always been honest. And uh, you know, he knew I didn't lie, I knew he didn't lie. We just, you know, we're had so much in common from the same birth date to the uh, not year, but date, and to the love of Philadelphia sports to just hanging out and laughing. We just were a natural fit. And thirty years later, he's still my best friend. We still hang out all the time. Yeah, you talked about his early gimmick. I, I always wondered, has, has Hack ever, has he ever surfed? No. Yeah, so I figured. <laughs> I don't even know where he stole the surfboard from. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so odd to me that that something like that was given to him. But uh, uh, so you you talk in the book about uh, the first ECW pay per view, barely legal, and, and you you said that, and I, I don't know how you put it exactly, but that was kind of the beginning of the you you knew that was the beginning of the end, right? You had overstepped. Yeah, the company had overstepped, and of course, this was oh. this was after Paul was in charge. But the the company had overstepped, stretched too far, and that was that was the beginning of the end. But you also talk a lot about the earlier TV deals with MSG and Sunshine Networks, and the impact that those had financially. Do you really feel like? Do you feel like those TV deals that Paul convinced you that he had the advertising sold and he, he could do that, and it never it never panned out? Do you do you feel like maybe those two DVD TV deals really? had the big first impact on, on you guys overstretching? Oh, 100%. We were trying to run before we had walked kind of thing. Uh, first of all, the uh, Sunshine Network, that was a gamble on both our parts. I mean, I knew that was a gamble. There was no one promising me anything on that. New York, that is a different deal. I mean, the MSG Network, he did tell me that he was Mr. Studio 54. Everybody in New York knew him. He had 10 people already clamoring to take 
ownership of the show in New York. I mean, they wouldn't sponsor us. They wouldn't do, they, so he said, don't worry about commercials. That thing will pay for itself. But we never had one commercial in New York. Some of our own ECW commercials. So that was definitely a hit. I mean, you have to understand uh, MSG and Sunshine were each $3,000 a week. That's $6,000 times four. It's 24000 a month. So think about that. And we're not bringing that back in. As many tapes we sold, there's still VHS tapes. And we only sell so much of them. It's a sin that the internet wasn't around then. Because, my God, had it been five or six or even eight years later, whatever, we could sell those shows at the arena for five, ten, whatever it is, all over the country. We'd have been self-sustained in no time. Yep, absolutely. we're just ahead. Of, we're too too soon for the internet. That that really hurt us a lot. Yeah, EC, I think ECW's always had that feel, right? It was it was just like just slightly out of time. It is. I mean, a lot of these promotions now that are that are really you know successful now and do the streaming and stuff. I always think, man, this is this is what ECW laid the foundation for, right? With the tape selling and everything else. That was that was the avenue you had, and it's that DU, you know, that DYI philosophy that all these groups do now you guys were doing it then but now they just have there's just more tools to do it yeah and i don't know what and, but they don't the product to be successful like that we became more successful even without that than they did with the use of the internet uh, it's amazing to me it's astounding and certainly humbling that's 30 years later and people still yell at ecw at a show because to them that they're doing is they're saying this is our our feeling of something we like we like this this is, means ECW means it's good, you know. Like and that shit on there going, yes, ECW. That's popping. They still use those letters out. They did it raw here in Philly, like a couple months ago. Ball came out. The whole place started. Twenty thousand people yelling ECW. That astounds me and it totally humbles me. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, in the for those wondering, in the book you do you hit and discuss all the hot button ECW items that people people want to hear about you. You talk about the Shane Douglas, Shane Douglas NWA title incident. You talk about mass transit. You talk about the flaming chair. But the one that that seems like you need to clear up more than any other, and that you that you know that you had to do was your departure as the owner of ECW and the whole and the rumor of you being the 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 mole for WCW. Now we obviously don't want to give it all away because we want people to buy the books. But what, but what can you tell us a little bit and give kind of people a tease about that whole situation? You can tell people that they're going to be blown away when they find out that. This was something that Paul and I orchestrated together. Uh, only the conclusion didn't end the way we thought it was supposed to end. But yeah, that was a way for him to galvanize the locker room. Because the fact that they were really splintered at that point. They went from being this tight family knit group to like clicks all of a sudden. There was the New York click, the Philly click, and Taz had his own click, you know, one man click. But I'm just saying, uh, the locker room was splintered. He was losing the locker room. There were issues, you know, their cat, you know, about money and things like that. And he's, I said, "Well, I'm leaving because I just can't do this anymore. I, you know, I'm not going to lie to the guys. You're asking me to lie. I'm not doing that." So we came up with this idea of, uh, you know, phone call to Terry Taylor. We'll do this, but making it seem as though we're trying to take the company under, and that way the whole locker room would get back together. And he can do his Newt Rocking speech. You know, come on, guys, it's us against the world again. That's how we started. That's why we had that attitude. We got to get back to that. So we, we got to all band together and you know fight off the outside world who's trying to take us apart. But no one ever thought about it, which is so, in retrospect, so logical. This is you know, if I wanted to take the company down, what to do is take the music with me, the tapes with me. Yep. I mean, the tape library was the whole value of the company. Yep. I owned it. 
for he needed it. He needed to be able to run shows and put a TV show on, say, and back two years ago or year and show a clip without that, not a clip to go on. It, it's, you know, that, that would have killed the company. Yep. So, of course, I wasn't trying to put the company down. I wanted to keep the company going because I need to get, oh, I want to get all my money back that I had invested. And the only way to get that back is with the success of the company. But that logic apparently escaped a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. You, you talk a lot about that. I mean, for someone who is, Supposedly trying to bury it. Yeah, you you sure you worked with Paul a lot. I mean, don't even even you know set you know payment plans to 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 buy the taste for you. Of course, with you said that you had to go to Paul's mom a lot to get that money uh, because of you know. Well, his parents were, were well. They were bankrolling. You know, in all fairness, they yeah, they lost right. millions of dollars too. So they're they're bankrolls. So that's you want to make sure that you know you talk to him about getting your payments. Yeah, and it's like I said, there you, you go you thoroughly into this. I mean, this is clearly. Uh, this is probably one of the most going to be one of the most talked about parts of the book, but it is you talk about so much more, right? You hit, like I said, you hit everything. Uh, but, tell um, some great war stories about the road. You know, yeah. you'll hear some partying stories. You're hearing about sex stories. I mean, we're ECW. We did it all. We were hardcore. I mean, we were all, we were all kind of balls to the wall in those days. It was 30 years ago. I mean, in retrospect, you know, I used to joke back then saying, if you can pass a piss test, you can't work here. Instead yeah. of the other way around, but in retrospect, thirty years later, it's not so funny anymore. Right. All the deaths that we've had and stuff like that. But you know, we were younger. You know, there's those things AIDS that we knew of that back then. I mean, no one had ever heard of that, so they didn't worry about the blood and the ring that you would worry about it today. Yeah. There's just so many things that we, you know, we're still like you know, wild stallions. We knew nothing about going forward, but the parties and the stories that are in there are pretty goddamn funny. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely are. And like, you know, we talked earlier about people writing the story. I mean, you telling your story, you, you know, in all you know, fairness, you could paint it any way you want, but you don't, you, you lay it all out there, uh, you know, warts and all, and, and you own up to the things you did, right? And, 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 you know, you're not just pointing fingers or telling stories to other people, right? You, it's, it's, it's very, it's a very honest telling, right? You, uh, you, you come it wouldn't forward. Be fair to, it wouldn't be fair to tell stories about other people. And as though I was just an outsider looking in, I mean, that, yep. that would be wrong on so many levels. So, yeah, I took, I took some lumps in the book and I admitted where my failings were, for whatever they may have been. And 30 years later, now I'm older and I'm just hopefully in the golden years, so to speak. And I can just relax and enjoy it and remember these times for what they were, which was an incredible, incredible run. Yep. And, you know, you haven't you haven't spoken to Paul Heyman in years. You say since the you know production of that DVD, his DVD set, which came out in 2014 and he, you know, you spoke on it, but then he kind of buried you. If just say you get on an elevator somewhere and the door is closed and it's just you and Paul Heyman in that elevator alone, what what would you say to him? Never should have ended like that. Do you, and short how, and simple. Short and <laughs> simple. And how do you think Paul would hear it? <laughs> no, he understands exactly. Listen, we were very simpatico. This guy yeah. was my best friend for years. I mean, we used to talk day and night, yeah. seven days a week. I mean, my God, just a Dudley conversation alone where we came up with about 75 different Dudley ideas where we were falling on the ground laughing so hard. Uh, you know, we, we just, we were tight, very yeah. tight. So I, I think what happens is how Eddie Gilbert was with Jerry Lawler where he really wanted to be Jerry Lawler. And he brought that whole Memphis concept here where he wore the crown and he wanted to be the king of Philadelphia where Jerry was king of Memphis. Well, I think Postal, as the success of the company grew, you know, and his name was now being bandied about as like the greatest mind in the history. You know, all of a sudden, he was getting credit for a lot of things. 
And I think he got some kind of delusions of wanting to be the next Vince. Yep. And in order to do that, he needed to be a single king, and Vince was ruthless. So he must have assumed that that's the best way to go about it, I guess. I, but it's hard to you know get inside somebody else's head and know all of his motivations. But that would be you know, as close as I could come to as a guess. Yeah, it, and that's the that's one of the biggest things that I took from the book when I read it. Through the whole, you know, all these stories you tell and everything else. You, like I said, you tell a lot of great stories. Uh, it's just that I mean, the saddest part of it all was me was this this broken friendship between you and Paul. Like you said, you guys, you were you were very dissimilar people, but yet it somehow it worked, right? You were like that that we odd couple dissimilar. that they We were actually weren't dissimilar. We both had very similar backgrounds. Okay. Uh, we're we're both Jewish. He, you know, uh, you know, middle class. Uh, you know, good families. Uh, his family was. I love his family. His parents were wonderful people. Uh, and I came from good stock too. My parents were wonderful people. But we were ver- we were very similar. From the time we started hanging out a little bit, and we started talking about uh, the uh, Bugs Bunny cartoons, Warner Brothers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and we started doing the dialogue back and forth, you know. Okay, Muggsy, and we knew the fact that we both knew pathetically the dialogue completely, you know, without missing a beat. And we would just play off of each other. That's you know, that's what it was. Here's a story. I don't think I don't know if I told it in the book or not. You mentioned the I mentioned Warner Brothers. They had a cartoon with Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. In this cartoon, as always, we try to outdo each other to become the big, the number one act at the carnival or the show. To the very last maneuver, Daffy Duck swallows dynamite, blows up, and you see him floating away to the skies as the cartoon's ending. And Bug says, Daffy, I gotta hand it to you, Claps, gotta give it to you that you that's the best, greatest show I've ever seen in my life. And Daffy goes, Yeah, but I can only do it once. <laughs> One day we're in the locker room, we're talking with Cactus Jack about whatever had just going on. He said, You know, this is getting crazy. This thing's getting so ultra violent now that I feel like the only thing I have left is the Daffy Duck bump. And Paul and I looked at him and said, what did you say? He said, the Daffy Duck bump. And you remember? I said, yeah, we remember. Of course, we were so shocked when he said that. It was such a funny thing to say. So, yeah, I don't know if I put that in the book or not, but there's so many stories that didn't, didn't make it, too. Yeah. Yeah, but like I said, though, that's just, that is one of these things. I mean, because, you know, you guys are so close. Like, you spoke daily and worked together so closely. I mean, you guys probably, I mean, I'm sure you spent more time with each other than you did, you know, your families. And uh, yeah. and for it to end that way, right? And then and how it ended with you know people people being hurt, and now just you know not no contact whatsoever. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, after it's going from ninety seven so to from ninety seven to two thousand fourteen, that's uh, seventeen years. We stayed friends for another seventeen years after that. Yeah, I mean, we weren't partners anymore, but we we still were friends. We still we still cared about each other's lives. Yeah. Yeah, like I said, it's you know it is it's a, it's a great book, right? It's I mean, there's the wrestling story, but it's there's a lot of great human stories, right? You, you know, and uh, you you tell like I said, you touched on everything that an ECW fan would want what to hear about from your side, and you know, we talked about you know that you know WWE writes the history of these things, so it's nice to hear, nice to hear the the non corporate version of these stories and and what actually you happened. mean the author you mean the authorized story, <laughs> the authorized story. There you go. That's right. That's in the title. Uh, it, like we said, it's called Todd is God, the authorized story of how I created extreme championship wrestling. You can get that from any book retailer uh, in location online. Just so go out and get your copy. It is, it's available now. I highly recommend it for everyone. Todd, thanks for coming on and talking to me about this book. Uh, I didn't want to, I didn't want to spoil too much of the book. So we didn't go too deep into some of these stories. Cause I really want people to go out and, and, and read it in your words. 
I love that. And I'll tell you what, I think you did a great job here. And I'm hoping maybe in a month or so we'll come back that we can go into more depth about some of these stories. Ladies and gentlemen, Wrestling Fans International Association is back. That's right, the premier fan club association of the 1970s and 1980s has been revived and is back in business. Join today. It's free at thewfia.org. That's T-H-E-W-F-I-A.org. You can also join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash WFIA1969. All right, and welcome back to Wrestling Nostalgia. There you have it, my interview with Todd Gordon. Uh, like I said, I did not want to give away uh, too much from the book, right? Too many of the stories, because I want you guys to really go out and buy it and read it and support Todd and Sean and the book. Uh, but like uh, you know, like uh, like Todd said, he, he's agreed to come back in a couple months, uh, and uh, then we can really, we'll kind of feel like the, uh, the spoil of territory is off, and we can really dive into some more stuff a little deeper. Uh, so go out and get that book. Again, it is called... Uh, Todd is God, the authorized story of how I created Extreme Championship Wrestling. It's available from all major book retailers. I got an early review copy of this book, right? I uh, like I, I told Todd, I you know I, I'm on a, a lot of lists with a lot of publishers where I get uh, review copies of, of wrestling books. They know I have a wrestling podcast, and this book uh, I, I gave it a read. I gave it a read, excuse me, and it was a, it was a quick read for me, right? Because number one, like I said, I, I love ECW, so it was a topic I was I was interested in. And uh, while I've read many books about ECW and this and that, and uh, a lot of them, though, you know, have that that spin on it. Right. And I, I was really excited to hear Todd's side of it because you don't hear that a lot. Right. Todd has not been one of those guys who's been out there, uh, you know, preaching to everybody about this and that and, and telling his side of the story. Very excited to finally get to hear Todd's side of things. And uh, the book was spectacular. Right. It felt like. You were sitting down, like I did here, and just had a conversation with Todd, and he was just telling these stories. And he said that's because that's what it was, right? That's what he was doing with Sean Oliver. He was just portraying these stories, and Sean was converting over to books. So I, I think that that format works so well. And Sean did a spectacular job of putting it together and, and, and in a an order, a chronological order, you know, and and putting putting the pieces where they needed to be of, the, of these stories. I absolutely would love to hear some of these stories and, and hear some of the stories that, that didn't make the book. Uh, but uh, like I said in the interview, Todd touches on all those hot button things, right? The the uh, Shane NWA title incident, mass transit, the flaming chair. Um, but like I said, the, probably the, the biggest newsmaker, the most relevant thing. And, and when Todd was on Bob Smith's podcast, right, it made a lot of headlines where uh, where it came out. This was before the book was released, where it came out that that Todd was going to tell his side of the story of why how Paul Heyman gained control of ECW and um, and it's and it's it's fascinating to hear and fascinating to read and in the timeline of this and it makes you scratch your head and, and realize there was there was a there was something a play and um, and something amiss with with Paul Heyman's approach to this and it seems like it was there was kind of a, a long game being played there that Todd got caught up in with Paul and um, and 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 he talks about it right, and and how it went on for a while, where uh, where you know they they gave the vision that Todd was still in control, and then when that started to fall apart, uh, where you know Todd became the fall guy, right, the guy to 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 babyface Paul Heyman and make him feel like the hero to the locker room, 
And, and Todd talks about that in the book. And of course that touches on the, this long rumor that uh, Todd Gordon was a mole for WCW set to bring down ECW. And this is, this rumor has been out there so long that people just accept it as fact. And it's not, it is not a fact. And Todd, uh, he talks about the incidents that, that led to this rumor starting. And he pulls back the curtain on the, the Paul Heyman, uh, acquisition quote unquote of ECW and how that happened. And, um, but there's so much more to the book, right? That's, that's, like I said, that's probably one of the parts that everybody's going to key in on because it's, it is the, the most, it's one of the most fascinating parts that we have never heard before, but there are so many great locker room stories, uh, travel lodge stories from in Philly, uh, lots of stories about the, the formation of, of Eastern championship wrestling before it became ECW. Uh, he talks, you know, he, he gives his side of the story and what really happened with the uh, Shane Douglas throwing down the NWA title, which is another fascinating aspect of the history of ECW. And it's great to hear Todd tell his side. And um, but what I like most, I think about it all is, I mean, all this stuff is great and hearing about these stories and, and, and hearing some of these facts. But is is how Todd talks about the people, right? The wrestlers, the the fans, uh, some of the the regulars at the arena and different things. And how he talks about them, and how important they were, and how how much these people became, you know, his a lot of them became his friends, and um, you know, and he he talks right, he tells the stories, he tells you know some of the good, bad, and the ugly, uh, but you know, unlike a lot of books, a lot of shoot interviews, whatever else, it's not just the bad and the ugly. Todd balances it. Even people that he claims that ah, I didn't get along with and I didn't care for, he still he still gives good, right? He he will still put some praise on them, right? He's not so uh, caught up in, in grudges or any negativity where it's just, he's trying to slam, but he, there's none of that, right? He is, he speaks very honestly. He speaks very candidly uh, and, and gives a, a very level telling of these things. And that includes him, right? He doesn't, uh, he doesn't do the shine on himself and just try to make him look like uh, anything more. He, he, he lays it all out there, warts and all. And he, you know, takes his lumps along with everybody else. And like you said, heard the interview, you know, he felt that was only fair, and and I think it's 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 refreshing in the world of professional wrestling because you don't hear that a lot, right? Especially knowing the corporate kind of rewriting of a lot of ECW's history, and um, like Todd said, and like I have said, and and no one's going to deny how cr- much of a creative genius Paul Heyman is. No one is going to deny the creative impact of Paul Heyman and ECW and how important that was, and what what that meant to what ECW was, what ECW became and the, the legacy of it. No one denies that, but what's often lost in those discussion is Todd Gordon and how he founded this company, how he hired Paul Heyman, how much he worked with Paul Heyman and, and some of the things that Todd Gordon did that established what ECW is today. He spoke of it in the book that in one of the wrestling observer newsletter, uh, awards one year, he was voted as the third most powerful man in wrestling behind Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff. This is for a company that at that time was just a small independent on the East Coast. That is spectacular and unbelievable and very, very true. So while Todd didn't set out to to write a book to, to, to just toot his own horn, uh, it was just telling of his side of the story. It does It does clarify some things that have been misinterpreted. It does clarify the importance of Todd Gordon in professional wrestling in in an ECW uh, at that period. And uh, it shows a a little more clarity in the lineage 
of of ECW and uh, the importance of Todd Gordon and when the it transitioned over to the the importance of Paul Heyman, right? So uh, again, Sean Oliver did a great job putting this book together. Uh, it, the the pictures in it from George Tahinos and and so many more are spectacular. Uh, there's a lot of you know a lot of great stories that you've heard over and over, but you don't like I said you've not heard them from Todd, and so that's very refreshing. Uh, so again, the book is amazing. Um, I, I recommend even if you're not necessarily a fan of ECW. And if you have that that naive mindset that that ECW is just uh, hardcore, 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 it, it definitely wasn't. But if you're a fan of professional wrestling, if you're a fan of professional wrestling history uh, and some of the behind the scenes and the inner workings, this is a book that you want to read because it's fascinating of how this this independent uh, promotion on the East Coast became such a worldwide phenomenon, um, even beyond its own its own realm, right? It, it, ECW overextended what it should have and what it technically really could have, which you know, kind of led to its demise, but it accomplished things that had never been accomplished. Uh, it accomplished things that it shouldn't have accomplished, but it did. Uh, and this book uh, tells a lot of how and why, and it tells a lot of how, uh, of Todd, Todd Gordon's part in that. And he tells it, you know, he tells when it was someone else, when it was a Paul Heyman thing or when it was whatever, you know, he doesn't try to go in and and put the corporate tarnish on it and uh, and tell that it was all him. He doesn't do that. He just tells the parts that were him and helps bring balance to this picture and brings it a little more in focus. Uh, and it's 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 hearing the other side of the story, which is always the proper thing to do when when you're looking at at history in, in any capacity. Uh, so the the book is spectacular. Once again, it's called Todd is God: The Authorized Story of How I Created Extreme Championship Wrestling by Todd. Gordon and Sean Oliver. It's at all book retailers. Go out and get yourself a copy. Uh, I highly advise it. I know Todd's uh, doing some appearances. He's been doing some convention stuff, popping up at some shows. So if uh, you get that opportunities in your area, uh, go out and see him. Uh, say hi. Tell him Dave Dynasty sent you, and uh, and all's well. And like we said, Todd will be back in a couple months or so, and uh, and, and we'll shoot the shit a little more, and we'll talk a little more. Uh, of the grime and the dirty and tell some of these stories and get into a lot of things that, that I didn't want to dive into today because I didn't want to spoil the book because the book's so so freshly released, so so new. It's just out, and I really uh, want people to buy it. So so there you have it. That concludes this episode. Thank you to Todd Gordon for coming on. Thank you all for joining us and listening to the show. As you always do, make sure you subscribe to us on whatever podcast platform uh, that you listen uh, make sure you follow us on all the social media links. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. All you have to do is look up Rassel Nostalgia, R-A-S-S-L-E-N-O-S-T-A-L-G-I-A. And then you can follow me personally on Twitter at The Dave Dynasty. Uh, make sure you go to ProWrestlingTees.com slash The Dave Dynasty. Buy a show shirt. Help support us. Uh, that would be great. Uh, again, guys, as you're out there, as you're doing your thing, support what you like. Uh, ignore the rest. Don't be an asshole. And, uh, you know, just spread a little positivity, but have a little fun in life. And wherever you go and whatever you do, be good, be safe, and keep on growing.